so much from this giant window. And I remember outside that window was a very large tree. And I can remember as this storm came through that uh, this large tree uh, would just kind of go back and forth. And uh, eventually the, uh, the tornado does touch down. And when it did, at just about that moment, that big giant tree, which even today I would not be able to get my arms around, just came crashing down about 15 yards from where I was standing in the living room. Had it fallen a different direction, myself, a couple of my siblings, and my cousins who were visiting that weekend would not be here today. I also remember... A couple of years ago, I was reading a book uh, that was written by a former park ranger. His territory was down in the southwest of the United States. The uh, area he was in when he told his story was just the, the hot part of the desert out there. And he had some malfunction with his truck, found himself in the middle of nowhere, off the road, in the, uh, on one of the hottest days of the year, in one of the hottest parts of our country. And if somebody hadn't come along... When they did, he was certainly going to be dead within a matter of hours because of the dangerous and excessive heat. Both of those descriptions are descriptions that we use to describe the difficult times in our life. Get out of the kitchen. (laughs) And so we use these things, these scary terminology to describe the difficulties of our life. But Elihu is going to take these very pictures and in this final speech, he is not going to use them to describe the difficulties and affliction of Job. He's going to use these pictures of the scary storm and of the, expre- the, the dangerous heat. He's going to use those to describe God. The majority of our text, in fact, is made up of, of Elihu carefully painting this picture of God as this scary storm and this dangerous heat. And the point of it in this fourth and final speech is to bring Job face to face with the reality that God is gloriously powerful. This morning, as you see, uh, or as you see, it's a large amount of text, but I'm going to kind of bounce around here in these two chapters. I think that will help make what he's saying here a little clearer. Again, this is about getting Job face-to-face with the glorious power of God. And so let me give you three points this morning. Number one, the first, uh, the first thing that Elihu is trying to lay out, or one of the big ideas that he's trying to put forth here, is number one, God governs the world by his power. God governs the world by his power. In fact, four times in this whole speech, Elihu declares in some form or another, God is mighty. In fact, he says it in almost every major part of this speech. Example would be verse 5 of chapter 36. He says, God is mighty. And then he goes on to explain that God is mighty in power and he is mighty in wisdom or mighty in knowledge. The idea there is in his mightiness, God has the power to uh, run the world as he sees fit. He has the power to make the desires that he has come around. 
But on top of that, he is mighty in knowledge. Nobody teaches God. He doesn't have a counselor. He doesn't have a, a group of people that he turns to. So what do you think I should do now? In verse 25 of chapter 36, this leads again to Elihu's declaration that God is afar or transcendent, that he's not like us. And in fact, in chapter 37, he appeals to the idea that God is so mighty in power and so mighty in his understanding that the way he governs the world is beyond our comprehension. He himself is beyond our understanding. But then in verse 29, of cha- verse 29 through verse 33 of chapter 36, he begins again to paint this picture of God as this violent thunderstorm. He describes lightning or God zapping the earth with lightning that is so bright that it lights up the depths of the sea. He talks about thunder that shakes the earth. You ever had that kind of thunder over your house when it, when it bangs and you can feel the house rattle? That's the kind of thunder. That is the voice of God. Verses 12 through 13 of chapter 37. He describes God's presence as that of the winds of a hurricane or, or tornado, that which swirls all around. And the ultimate point that he's making is that when God uh, uh, does and governs the world by his power, it is disruptive. It is disruptive to the actions of animals, to the actions of humans. And what a lot, the point of life he's making with Job is that God ruling and governing the earth is disruptive like a tornado is disruptive. That the God ruling and governing the world by his power is disruptive like a hurricane is disruptive. In verses 16 to 18 in verse 30 or in chapter 37, he changes briefly to this picture of God as this dangerous heat, so oppressive that it's hard to breathe, a heat that makes the earth feel like it's covered in hot metal. To encounter this would be misery. And he's going to close by saying, this is why God is the God of the north. Now, that's a term that we don't hear a whole lot, but it's actually used by a number of the prophets to describe God. And simply means this is a God who is the only member of the most exclusive club. It is to say that everything is south of him. Again, the goal here for Elihu is not only to get Job to know the power of God, but to feel it. And that's why this analogy of weather is so powerful. Storms and and, and, and overwhelming heat are just two ways that we encounter the weather of this world in ways that we cannot control. Think about it. Sitting at home, maybe early in the morning and... You're watching the news and the, the weather forecaster gets on and says, I think about 2 o'clock today we're going to get a pretty massive storm. So what do you do? How do you respond? How does that disrupt your life? You go, oh, wow, maybe I need to get to the store and get some bread. Maybe we need to make sure that the generator is full of gas. It disrupts your life. We have sirens in our little town here. We have sirens all around. Why? Because we know the destructive power of a tornado. In fact, in the year 2000, this town found out all about the destructive nature of a tornado. Knowing these realities is disruptive. 
And knowing that God governs the world by his, by his might, and by the fact that it is a might that is far more powerful than we can understand, a wisdom that is so much higher than ours, is disruptive. But there's a whole other level to this. For it's one thing to hear about the approaching storm. It's another thing to be standing in your front yard and watching it blow over your trees. It's one thing to know that God is mighty and by his knowledge and by his power he governs the world. It's another thing to have it play out in a way that you were not expecting in your life. Knowing that God has the power and authority to take away your dreams is one thing. But experiencing having him take them away is another. To know that God has the power and authority to, to, to write the story of your life is one thing. But then to have him write a story you did not want is another Knowing that God has the power and authority to take you off of one of life's many roads and put you on another is one thing, but to have him take you off the road you were on and set you on a detour is a whole nother. And this is the God of the Bible, and this is we see why it was why Elihu was concerned in his first speech to say to Job, How foolish are you to think you could understand without being taught by God Himself? And you see why in his second speech, he appeals to Job and saying that the place uh, that you need to comfort yourself is in the sovereignty of God. And we see why in the third speech, he says, really the greatest and, and the best good you could have is God himself. Because God governs the world by his mighty and his mighty power and his mighty understanding. So that's the first thing that Elihu, or I wanted to point out to you, that Elihu is making in this final speech. Secondly, another big theme of this long speech is this. Number two, God uses affliction for his purposes. God uses affliction for his purposes. Illustrating the cosmic power of God is just one thing that Elihu is trying to do. But he wants to see that God uses his power in this particular way, in the way of, of, of affliction. But before he does that, again, back in verse 5 of chapter 36, he makes a very important statement. And that is this, God does not despise any. The idea of that text is that God does not see any human life as small and insignificant. He does not treat people like his playthings. You can think of it this way. God of the Bible is not like the Greek gods. He's not like the Roman gods who caused all sorts of havoc in their mischief, who used humans as forms of entertainment, who took actions never considering the consequence of human life. That is not the God of the Bible. So when we talk about God using affliction for his purposes, this is a major statement. For Elihu points out that God does not despise any. He does not do this haphazardly. But then throughout the text, Elihu is going to give several examples of how God uses his voice of thunder and his bolts of lightning and his howling winds and his scorching heat. For example, 
In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 36, Elihu says that God uses these things. He uses affliction to bring justice for the oppressed. That kings are struck dead and rich men, they lose everything and nations fall for God is aware of the poor. He sends Amos to warn about those who are rich and powerful, despising the weak and the poor. In verses 8 through 10, we're given two more reasons. That God uses affliction to correct the wicked. He's already talked about this in one of his previous speeches. That God will use affliction to try and bring or save the soul from the pit. He's trying to draw them to himself. God uses affliction so that they may turn to him and be saved. Elihu says to Job that God uses affliction to instruct the righteous. This is really Job's situation. Again, the Bible is very clear. Job was an innocent man. He was a righteous man. He gave sacrifices, loved his children. But Elihu is saying God uses affliction even on the righteous man. So that the righteous man may see himself more clearly. He, to, to sell the righteous man it can see the parts of his life and the parts of his heart that he has not given over to the Lord. And this is why this illustration of the storm and this illustration of dangerous heat, why this is such a perfect illustration. Because we understand that when a storm comes and disrupts our lives, it is often to bring a gift. For we know, for example, that a lightning strike in a forest will clear debris, allowing new vegetation to grow. For those of us who constantly, or maybe I should say for those of you who constantly complain about the snow, you know what it's bringing. You understand these storms put moisture in the ground, and this is why the alfalfa grows. Now, we understand this. And we understand this maybe more, most clearly in the stories we tell. And the stories I'm most familiar with, it would be superhero stories. Almost every major character in the superhero genre, every superhero has had some affliction that has caused them to become who they are. Green Lantern watched his father die in a plane accident. Iron Man finds out that his company is responsible for millions of people dying. Superman lives knowing he's the only one of his kind. Spider-Man becomes Spider-Man, not when he's bitten by the spider, but when his lack of action causes the death of his Uncle Ben. We have hundreds of movies where we will cheer when the bad guy who has hurt lots of people finally gets his just desserts. We watch TV shows and watch characters grow and become better people as they struggle and battle with life. This idea that suffering and affliction can bring about good is almost a completely uniquely Christian idea. For 2,000 years, this world has been confronted with the cross of Christ. And Jesus in his life said that was where he was headed. And he told his disciples the cross was God's design. And as I've said many many times, we look at the cross, we see the greatest and most unjust suffering, and we watch it accomplish the greatest and most liberating good. 
The cross, justice handed down for all of sin. And we learn from the cross that there is no such thing as pointless pain. Or as C.S. Lewis and many others have described, that the pain and suffering of a Christian is a severe mercy. The Apostle Paul, suffering beatings and betrayals and shipwrecks, applied it this way. The light affliction is nothing compared, compared to the heavy weight of glory. And James says, to rejoice in various trials. And his point is, because there is no pointless pain. But then there's a third idea in this text. Not only the God in his might governs the world, and not only does he use affliction for his purposes, but number three, that God wants us. To listen and serve. Three times actually in this whole speech, Elihu appeals to Job to respond. He lays out in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 36, there's really only two responses to God in times of affliction. You can learn and serve, or you can refuse to listen and perish. And then he appeals to Job directly in verses 16 to 25. He asks Job Job the question. Here, uh, let me paraphrase these a little bit for you. He says to Job, if through affliction God is rescuing you from the jaws of danger, would you let him? He's asking Job, if, if through affliction God's gonna, it's gonna result in God placing you on a more firm foundation, would you let him? If through affliction, God is going to feed you to a place of fatness, would you let him? The implied questions are here. Will you refuse to be rescued? Will you refuse to be on a more firm foundation? This idea of a, of a drink and of bread is used again many times by the prophets calling it the cup of affliction or the bread of affliction that God hands out to make his people fat. And so the idea is, will you refuse this bread? Will you refuse to drink this cup of affliction knowing that God is going to use it to make you fat? And as we've seen through these speeches, Job has made a number of assumptions. He's asked a number of questions. He's declared that perhaps God has taken away fairness from Job. He has questioned whether or not God is just and good. He's wondered if maybe these years of faithfulness have been pointless. And we've seen that these questions and these assumptions have all been the products of the scorner or the thoughts of the wicked. Elihu is saying to Job, look, Job, perhaps there's an understanding here after all you went through of why you would think this way. Or perhaps why you would ask those questions. But he's, he's warning Job, don't allow yourself to become entrenched here. Verses 14 to 20 of chapter 37, Elihu makes another appeal to Job. To ask him to stop and to listen. Listen to the voice of God, to the thunder. He's asking Job to, to listen to his affliction. See what there is to learn. See the storm and the heat. Elihu is saying to Job, hear the thunder, see the lightning, feel the force of the wind. Pay attention. Stop and consider. And in verses 21 to 24 of chapter 37, he comes back again to this theme, that God is overwhelmingly glorious. There is no time of affliction in the Christian's life where these responses are not the right response. 
In fact, in another part of the Bible, we're told this is true. In another part of the Bible, in Ecclesiastes, for example, we're told that there's more wisdom at a funeral than there is at a wedding. Now, the text is not implying that there is no wisdom at a wedding. It's, it's not that we can't learn stuff when we're happy. It's just that there's more at a funeral. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever sat in a, a funeral, and after it was over, you had to go outside and give your mom a call? Perhaps have you ever been in a funeral and went home and, and hugged your kids? You ever sat in a funeral and found yourself going, I have wasted so much time. I need to be a better person. And you don't even have to be a family member. You don't even have to be a loved one of the person who has died. You perhaps are sitting in the back. Maybe you're there just to be a support. But you get just a perhaps a, a hair of the wind that Elihu is talking about. This, this storm that God has brought into this family who has had a loss. The, the, the draft off of it has now hit you. And has an opportunity to make you wise. Never had a trial in my life. In my walk with the Lord, I've never had a trial where I have not learned something about myself if I was not willing, if I was, as long as I was willing to listen. I'll give you a good example. You know, every young marriage faces affliction. Can't put two centers in close quarters and not get affliction. Yet, if they're willing to listen, willing to serve, try to understand why they got so upset when the other person used their truth brush, that you find out if they're, they're willing to listen and serve in that moment of affliction, that it is in that moment that a foundational stone is laid down and, find, and you find that there is more firmer ground when the wind blows harder. I had one person once describe this to me as the mastery of spiritual jujitsu. Jujitsu is a form of martial art that is uh, based on the idea of taking your opponent's aggression, his, uh, his actions, and using them against him. So the idea would be this. Somebody says something ugly to you, some word, some evil thing. Instead of becoming wrathful, instead of becoming depressed or becoming collapsing in on yourself, you listen to the pain. And suddenly what was meant to harm you becomes a help. I've seen this over and over in many people's lives. The loss of a job becomes the very help needed to finally break free of a continual struggle with sin. I've had experience many times walking through a trial with someone and hearing them talk about, even in the midst of perhaps great pain, learning to be thankful. And then there's the precious promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You might know the verse. No temptation is overtaking you except which is common to man. God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but will provide a way of escape. The word tempted there. It's actually the word trial would be more commonly uh, translated trial. And the idea there is the Bible saying, okay, there are going to be those things that overtake us. That word right there means things that have the potential to crush us. And he says they're common, meaning they're part of the normal governance that God has over the world. And so God brings these overtaking things into your life. And here's the promise. 
He will also bring what is needed to sustain us. You can think of it this way. God might call one person in this church to suffer affliction and to endure it for, so that good may come. But at the same time, he calls another or to a group to care for the afflicted in their time of trouble. This is what it means to bear each other's burdens. This is what it means to not fall asleep at the garden, but to watch and pray. Jesus will use these exact same images in Luke 12, this image of a storm and this heat. He'll use it to call the unbeliever to respond. In Luke 12, Jesus will say, look, you you know the sign of a coming storm. He says, you know the signs that it's going to be a really hot day. And when you see those signs, you respond accordingly. And he says to those who are unbelievers, he says, you have heard the sermons I have preached. You have seen the miracles I have done. It is hypocrisy for you to sit around and say that you have all manner of knowledge and yet refuse to understand the signs. And if you continue to reject what he has said and you continue to reject the witness of his miracles, he says, this is not going to end well for you. We have four wonderful speeches from Elihu. And all four of these have pointed to one place, and that is why the title of my message is this. All four of these, these speeches funnel to one particular thought, and that is the need for radical God-centeredness. In times of affliction, we're called to be taught by God, not become cold-hearted. In times of affliction, we're told to be uh, to find comfort in the sovereignty of our God. There is no place, no time, no issue we will face that is in some void that God is not able to do work in. And in our times of affliction, we are to place our hope in a God who is not like us. Meaning our hope is not tied to us, but to him. The point of being that Elihu is saying in our times of affliction, we should become more God-centered rather than less. The, the thing to do is to stop talking Job, but to draw near to him who is our only refuge in times of trouble. And let's pray. Father, thank you for these speeches of Elihu as he has confronted Job's sin as he has taken Job to the place where he is to find comfort and to be reminded and to see and to be filled with the wonder of the reality that God is gloriously powerful. All of this, Father, to guide us, to help us, to give us wisdom in our times of affliction. And we anticipate, Father, the speeches that you will make to Job and all that we will learn from them. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you, Father, that we can see the signs and we can hear the words. And, Father, thank you for giving us the faith to believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.